Welcome to the NCAST Monthly Regulatory Brief. I'm Aileen McDonough, your host and Director of Content Marketing at NContracts. In this podcast, our compliance team provides an overview and analysis of the latest regulatory changes for financial institutions, along with info on trends to help you keep up with the rapidly evolving nature of compliance. Let's get started. Hello, my name is Stephanie Lyon, Vice President of Compliance at NContracts. Today, we're going to be delivering our regulatory NCAST. And joining me is our Regulatory Compliance Counsel, Shelby Montgomery, and our Regulatory Compliance Expert, Katie Furl. We have a lot to discuss this month. It was Cybersecurity Awareness Month, so you can expect cybersecurity guidance. You can expect a lot of litigation and a lot of other developments in the news. We're going to divvy it up with topics affecting everyone in the industry. We're going to move on to those affecting depositories and end with our mortgage companies. Starting us off today is Shelby on our LIBOR update. Shelby, take it away. Thanks, Tiffany. Yeah, LIBOR has been in the news a lot this month, a lot recently in general, but especially this month. Um, maybe more specifically, it's end. We're hoping it's coming soon, but Just as a quick refresher, for practical purposes, LIBOR sets a benchmark for financial transactions, um, sets interest rates for products ranging anywhere from credit cards to adjustable rate mortgages. So many of you probably deal with LIBOR. It's been the subject of some scandal in recent years, and that has diminished its credibility. And as such, LIBOR is being discontinued. We've had some delays with with those dates um, because of COVID mainly, but we know now that certain settings, certain rates will cease immediately beginning December 31st of this year. And then others have been extended to June 30th of 2023, but they will cease immediately after that date. So it gives you some time to prepare and our regulators are, are trying to get us prepared to transition to another interest rate. Um, So here's the latest from this month. We'll start with HUD. HUD has recognized the challenges that will likely result um, in that change from one interest rate into another. And for that reason, they are seeking public comment on an advance notice of proposed rulemaking uh, in the hopes that they can best determine that a good method for transitioning from their legacy loans and new originations as well as a replacement rate. So comments are due um, on that, that rulemaking by December 6th. You've got some time to, to make your voice heard if you would like. Also this month, the Federal Reserve, CFPB, FDIC, NCUA, and OCC, along with state bank and credit union regulators issued a joint statement Again, emphasizing their expectation that all supervised institutions will continue to progress towards an orderly transition away from LIBOR. And this statement included some other clarifications. So check it out. It it may be good information for you to know. But two recommendations that came out of this. um, The first one, be transparent and communicate whatever changes will be required for you to move away from LIBOR to everyone who may need to know. And secondly, understand whether your systems are ready to make that change when LIBOR does end. And as an additional resource, the OCC provided an updated self-assessment tool for banks to evaluate their preparedness this month. 
Um, NAFQ has also recommended that credit unions take a look at this tool. It can be accessed on the OCC's website, um, and it does replace the tool that they published earlier this year. So the end is near, and we'll continue to advise you of any additional updates on LIBOR. Thank you so much, Shelby. With that, LIBOR has been transitioning for quite a while now, so I'm surprised to still see so much new guidance, but hopefully our financial institutions are ready to go. We're going to move on to one of our primary federal regulators, and that is the CFPB. Katie, what's going on on that front? Well, as we know, the CFPB, under its new leadership this year, has been very, very busy, and October was no different. Uh, they issued some questions and answers this month pertaining to the provisions of their debt collections rule, or Regulation F, that becomes effective very soon on November 30th. These 27 FAQs can be found on the Bureau's website as a compliance aid. And while they do repeat much of what is stated in the rule, they specifically addressed limited content messages, or LCMs, and call frequency limitations to borrowers, among many other highlights. The FAQs clarify the qualifications for the new term limited content message. They address interrupted or dropped calls, mention the use of LCM scripts, and just as a reminder, LCMs are messages for a consumer that include the required content detailed in the rule, such as obviously you must identify your business and the contact information for your business when you are attempting to collect on a debt, as well as informing the consumer how they can contact you back and reply to the message. The FAQs also reiterate that debt collectors can utilize a pre-recorded voice message for limited content messages, but they also caution debt collectors to be wary that you are still subject to TCPA requirements for pre-recorded messages. The FAQs also give some great examples around the seven and seven, which means a collector can place a telephone call to a person no more than seven times within seven days and not again for another seven-day period after a telephone conversation is held with a borrower. So check those out because it gives some great scenarios as to when the seven and seven may not apply. The FAQs also reiterate the prohibition against harassing, abusive, oppressive uh, behavior when conducting telephone calls to consumers. And finally, the FAQs reiterate that the final rule does not preempt state law when state law affords greater protection to consumers. So pay attention to these FAQs because November 30th is right around the corner. Thank you so much, Katie. And we're going to move on to FinCEN. They recently issued a ransomware advisory on trends. And this might come as a surprise since OFAC just recently released one as well last month. But FinCEN is specifically focusing on the fact that there's so much suspicious activity reports regarding ransomware. And just as a reminder, ransomware is when software encrypts your data and it's held hostage until you pay some kind of uh, ransom, of course, hence the name. And FinCEN is saying that just in the period between January 1st, 2021 and June or July, we have seen more ransomware-related SARS and ransomware-related amounts in those SARS than all of 2020. That should tell you how much 
this type of cyber crime is growing in our industry. And something that's really important to note is it has grown not just because a lot of us are working remotely, but it's also growing because the sophistication of the bad actors continues to just get better and better. Just recently, the folks that are involved in coding ransomware, they started selling or licensing the software to other bad actors. So the entrance fee uh, basically to get into this type of crime has been lowered significantly since more people now can start targeting any type of business. They don't even have to have the technical expertise anymore to go develop this type of software. So that's one of the other reasons we're seeing ransomware attacks just so much on the rise. So in the advisory, Vincent didn't just highlight the propensity of the problem. They also gave us a lot of red flags to be watching out for regarding this type of activity. They reminded us that virtual currency does tend to be the preferred method for payment in ransomware attacks. And most recently, criminals have started utilizing something called anonymity-enhanced cryptocurrency so that they can, again, hide their identities. They stop using the same wallets, so they're now focusing on single-use wallets. And they're layering funds, just like we see in money laundering schemes, where instead of just taking it out from one place, you layer it through several different exchanges, and they take out the funds in foreign exchange places that lack the right anti-money laundering programs or that don't have the appropriate countering the financing of terrorism uh, kind of guidance that we have here in the United States. So that's why we're seeing a lot more of a rise in these type of successful attacks. The advisory also offered us some detection, mitigation, and reporting tips if your financial institution experiences this type of cybercrime or if you notice any type of suspicious activity. So be on the lookout. And the best thing you can do is prepare right now with your security and make sure that this does not happen to your institution. We're going to move on to issues affecting our depository institutions. And we're back to the CFPB. But this time, we're going to talk about litigation with the CFPB's payday lending rule. Isn't that right, Katie? That's right. The CFPB's 2017 payday lending rule continues uh, to face challenges from the industry. And uh, in October, no different, in a very lengthy two-sentence, one-paragraph order issued this month, a three-judge panel uh, for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit did step in and extend the CFPB's payday lending regulations. Um, this decision does give small dollar lenders a reprieve from the June 2022 compliance deadline. Just a little history, uh, this rule was originally passed in 2017, and like I said, it has faced repeated challenges, and it doesn't appear those challenges are going to go away anytime soon. In 2020, as a result of industry pushback, at that time, a portion of the rule was repealed that, among other provisions, required payday lenders to assess ability to repay for borrowers. But that repeal wasn't enough. Uh, the final rule still includes a provision that prohibits lenders from making new attempts to withdraw funds from an account after two consecutive failed attempts without consumer consent. As a reminder, those provisions exempt attempted transfers by institutions that hold the borrower's account and do not charge NSF or overdraft fees for that attempted withdrawal. And it's also important to note that this order does not affect the exemption of the rule for banks or depository institutions that originated 
2,500 or fewer small dollar loans in both this year and the previous year, as well as if those loans don't account for more than 10% of those revenues. So that may um, eliminate many of you who are subject to this rule, but I don't think it's, it's ending here. It is very likely the CFPB is going to seek further review of the Fifth Circuit's order. But even if that takes place, it is anticipated uh, that that process could take several months or longer. So it seems the mandatory compliance date for this rule is still very much unknown at this time, and we will continue to keep you updated as any other further litigation occurs. There is nothing more frustrating than when we can't even figure out the mandatory compliance date on a rule. So thank you for that update, Katie. We're going to move on to OFAC, and OFAC has actually been on a rule issuing guidance lately. We just mentioned uh, that ransomware guidance they had last month. This month, they're focusing their efforts on virtual currencies and what they mean for financial institution sanctioned programs. Just last week, I was actually at a conference in Texas, and I was speaking to a compliance officer, and she told me that their bank is actually going to enter the virtual currency space. So this is happening. People are starting to get excited about offering services relating to virtual currencies to their business customers, their natural person customers. And it's very important that whenever we start a new product or a new service offering, we always think about the current sanctions program, the current anti-money laundering program you might have at your institution. And OFAC guidance specifically focuses on the fact that virtual currency could still violate sanctions that they have on foreign countries or folks or individuals. Um, so it's important that you remember that if you come into contact with virtual currency for a blocked party or a prohibited party, that you go ahead and you block that virtual currency. They explain what it means to block virtual currency. It's not as easy as taking a deposited fund and just moving it over to an interest-bearing account. In the case of virtual currency, thankfully, your institution is not responsible for converting the virtual currency into fiat currency like the US dollar. And you also don't have to transfer the virtual currency into an interest-bearing deposit account. So those are helpful information points. The uh, Office of Foreign Asset Control also reminded us that we have 10 days to start reporting any block transaction. You also have annual reporting requirements. So again, if your institution is thinking about starting anywhere with virtual currency, this guidance is going to help you get started with your compliance program in the AML, BSA, and OFAC space. While I personally think this guidance is a little bit basic for financial institutions, you have to remember that a lot of the players out there in the virtual currency space have never had OFAC sanctions compliance programs at their institutions. So you're going to see a lot of the normal basic things you already have in place today, like risk assessments, internal control requirements, testing, training, and so forth. So go ahead, take a look, but know that you're already doing most of this. You just now have to think about it from the virtual currency space. We're going to go ahead and move on to topics affecting our banks. And we're going to start with the FDIC regulator. Shelby, what are they up to? So the FDIC this month issued a final rule making changes to its guidelines for real estate lending policies. Um, and this was done in order to align the standards with the community bank leverage ratio. 
So that does not require electing institutions to calculate tier two capital or total capital, which is always a mouthful for me to say. But this final rule ensures that the FDIC's regulation regarding supervisory LTV limits is consistent with how examiners are calculating credit concentrations. And that was as directed by a statement issued last year that examiners will use tier one capital plus the appropriate allowance for credit losses as the denominator when they're calculating credit concentrations. Now, all that being said, this is not effective until November the 26th, but obviously I would advise you start reviewing your policies now and determine what updates you may need to make in your institution. All right, thank you so much, Shelby. And we're gonna finish with the banks with the OCC and Katie has the scoop on OCC and what they're up to right now. That's right. For all of you who are OCC regulated, you probably saw the release of their supervision priorities and objectives for the fiscal year 2022 which began actually on October 1st and uh, flows through next September of 2022. There really were no surprises in these priorities. I don't believe the OCC within this issuance missed anything. It covers a wide gamut. Many of the topics and many of the um, issues that we've been covering in our NCAS this year are within it as well as it reiterates a lot of the guidance, the speeches, and the bulletins that the agency has pushed out this year. Obviously, the OCC plans to assess the economic, financial, compliance, and operational impacts of the pandemic, but what I really wanted to focus on is that they are expected to perform assessments of internal controls and operational processes that change during the pandemic. So all of those actions that we took to essentially aid our customers, such as PPP loans, it looks to see that they are going to look at how you implemented those processes. Also at the forefront, as always, is ensuring that banks are maintaining a stable financial position through appropriate management of interest rate and credit risk. And they're also gonna check in to see how you are doing with your adoption of CECL. Uh, no surprise either, we've talked about it all month, cybersecurity, vulnerability, and operational resilience will remain at the forefront for the OCC, as well as, like I said, the whole gambit. They're going to uh, assess your ability to manage third parties, your BSA, AML compliance, your fair lending um, system, CRA, your ability to react to the cessation of LIBOR, as Shelby alluded to earlier, and also some of the new topics that are within these supervisory priorities reiterate a lot of what we've been talking about in our NCAST, and that's uh, fintechs, doing business with fintechs, and your assessment of those relationships. They issued guidance uh, several weeks ago, so you've got some tools there to assist with that. And lastly, um, I do want to comment on that we have some formal supervisory priorities as it relates to climate risk management. Um, they have indicated within their priorities that they plan to continue the information collection and gathering efforts of how climate risk affects the institutions in which they regulate. Um, so I expect to see a lot more guidance and information from the OCC 
coming soon regarding climate risk. They also uh, indicated they will provide updates about their priorities through their semi-annual risk perspective in the spring of 2022. Um, again, this is a great resource, uh, even for those of you who aren't OCC regulated, because it does cover, like I said, a very wide range of topics that are at the forefront of the agency. Wonderful, Katie. Like you said, not a lot of surprises, but definitely a lot of important things that your compliance and other risk programs are going to want to take into account. We're going to go ahead and shift gears and go into matters affecting credit unions. The NCUA was extremely busy this month. They issued a lot of guidance and rules, and we're going to start with their first risk alert. And Shelby's going to tell us a little bit about what they were doing on the risk alert front. The NCUA couldn't be left out of the cybersecurity party. So they issued this risk alert related to cyber criminals who are targeting organizations uh, that use popular cloud-based email services to conduct business email compromise or BEC scams. Um, for those of you who may not call it a BEC scam, just to tell you what it is, you know it well. It's where criminals send an email that appears to be from someone you know and making a legitimate request. You've heard about CEOs who email you. Maybe they are asking you to purchase gift cards for all the employees, and then they want you to send them the serial numbers from the gift cards. Or another example I saw was a vendor who you regularly deal with sends you an invoice with an updated mailing address, and then you send money to a mailing address that maybe you haven't sent before. So these are things that the NCUA is, is asking you to watch out for. Uh, BEC scams, that can be one of the most financially damaging online crimes. So the risk alert recommended a number of steps for credit unions to take to prevent BEC fraud. And that included enabling multi-factor authentication, for example, or your security alerts, train your employees, use caution um, when posting to social media or websites things that we all know, but just needed to be reminded of in this month. Um, also worth noting, because it has been Cybersecurity Awareness Month in October, many states have issued guidance, news, tips, and tricks. So it may be worth your time to, to review some of these and see if there's anything that may be helpful for you and your organization. But I do say October may have been Cybersecurity Awareness Month but cybersecurity should always be at the top of your mind every month. Well said, Shelby. During the NCUA's latest board meeting, they also approved two final rules. The first one is on the CAMEL rating system. CAMEL stands for Capital, Asset Quality, Management, Earnings, Liquidity. And now we're going to be adding an S at the end, so CAMELS. And the S is going to stand for Sensitivity to Market Risk. NCUA is not being an innovator out there. Most other federal banking agencies like the OCC, the FDIC, the FRB, they already examine their banks for that S, that Sensitivity to Market. The reason we're just now on the credit union level adding that S is whenever all the banking agencies made the change in the 90s, NCUA decided that credit unions were just not complex enough. They didn't have the type of balance sheet that needed to be examined for sensitivity to market risk. So they decided to abstain from making that change to institutions then. 
However, a lot has changed since credit unions continue to grow. The type of products and services offering that we see are getting more sophisticated and complex. And so NCUA thought appropriate that we needed to add that S so that we could examine properly for interest rate risk as well as price risk. So what's going to happen is NCOA is going to redefine the L for liquidity that previously not only lo looked at your liquidity risk, meaning do you have the assets to be able to pay uh, or cash out whenever a customer wants their funds or whenever you have any type of liability come due, but they're going to remove the interest rate guidance from that L, the liquidity, and they're going to put that, that interest rate risk guidance onto the S. So what can we expect from this type of change? Well, you're going to get an updated examination exam from NCUA. You're going to get additional legal opinion letters on these letters, and you're going to get a little bit more guidance on how to properly implement these changes. Who at your institution needs to know about this CAMELS change? I would definitely say your CFO is probably the number one person that needs to know about this, followed by your CEO and your uh, CRO, if you have one, or your person managing your enterprise risk management program, or simply your risk management program, as if you currently have any type of financial models that are reflecting your interest rate risk. You might need to make a couple of changes there to reflect the new NCOA rating system, CAMELS. We're going to now move on to the next final rule, and this is on credit union service organizations, or QSOs, and Katie's going to tell us a little bit about it. Yes, thanks, Steph. This one, um, unlike the CAMELS ruling, was not a unanimous vote as it relates to the final rule the NCOA issued as it relates to permissible activities and services that credit union service organizations, or as we refer to them as QSOs, can engage in, particularly lending. This ruling also gives NCUA flexibility to approve permissible activities and services of QSOs outside of the formal notice and comment rulemaking. This list of permissible loans by QSOs is now expanded not only from the business loans, mortgage loans, credit cards, and student loans that they have been able to make, but it also lends them to be able to um, make loans in, for automobiles and small dollar loans. And for those of you in the industry who are heavy automobile lenders, which many credit unions are, this is a huge ruling if you are partnering with QSOs to aid in that particular type of lending. Uh, in 2008, NCUA declined to allow QSOs to make direct auto loans. So again, this is huge for those of you who are participating in automobile lending. I do want to note, however, this decision was not unanimous. It was approved with a two-to-one vote. Uh, NCUA Vice Chairman Kyle Halton strongly supported this ruling. Uh, he feels that QSOs have been making direct mortgage business and other loans to consumers for many years with no negative impacts to the industry. And he also feels that this ruling will expand members' choices in the digital marketplace. Board member Rodney Hood was a little bit um, on both sides of the table here. He feels that the ruling will help credit unions stay relevant in the industry, but he does feel there's more, um, more work to be done as it relates on the QSO front. And then on the other side of the token, um, board member Todd Harper strongly opposed the ruling. Um, 
And he stated that he believes that will result in losses to the National Credit Union Share Insurance Fund. And he also has concerns about third-party oversight, as we all know the NCOA does not supervise QSOs for their adherence to consumer protection laws, as well as not monitoring them for what we as credit unions are expected to monitor, monitor such as concentration limits, loan-to-value ratios, and appropriate capital levels. He stated, and I quote, this final rule will create an unregulated wild west within the credit union space. Interesting stances on both sides with this particular ruling, um, but I do feel that it is a very important ruling for the credit union industry, and many of tra our trade associations have expressed a lot of support for this ruling and expanding these services to QSOs. I will, I will say, just on a personal note, if you decide to expand your relationships with QSOs or enter into a new relationship at all, just be sure that you are appropriately managing the, any risks that may be associated with that relationship. Um, any third-party monitoring or due diligence, if it needs to be ramped up a bit, I encourage you to do that. And just like you do with any third-party relationship, be sure that you are appropriately monitoring them and, and keep up with it. So huge ruling for the credit union industry this week. And we will see how it plays out. Absolutely, Katie. I like the wild, wild west <laughs> commentary. <laughs> All right. I wanted to give everyone a reminder on NCOA really quickly. There was a notice for comment that was issued out at the beginning of September. And it was about changes or proposed changes to the call report. As we all know, call reports are incredibly important for every single credit union out there. It usually takes a significant amount of time to prepare them at the end of the month. It requires a lot of folks at your credit union to get involved as well as, as, well as your core and other important systems. Well, this change that NCUA is proposing to make to the call report was passed a little bit unceremoniously, and some people might even say that it was not publicly announced well, and it does include changes relating to RBC calculation schedules. So if this is something that interests your credit union, if this is something that you're going to need to prepare for, you might want to check that out from September because comments are due by the end of November. So don't let this opportunity for you to ensure this is going to work for your systems, your processes, and not be very costly to let the NCUA know about those things. And we're going to go ahead and write, wrap this up and we're going to end with our mortgage companies and Shelby's going to tell us what's going on in the mortgage company space. I just wanted to give you a quick reminder that the NMLS is annual renewal, license renewal process for 2022 uh, will begin November 1st and it runs through the end of the year to December 31st. Um, and this is just to serve as a reminder that you must meet all renewal requirements in the states where you are licensed before you can submit a request um, to renew your license. So if you have any questions, the NMLS's website is a great resource. They have an annual renewal page as well as um, a free online renewal training course there. So plenty of resources, no reason for you to not follow through. And, and complete that process, but take care of it. It's, it's coming up. 
Thank you so much, Shelby, Katie, for joining me today. Everyone here, we're excited to deliver another one of our NCAST. And if you need any more information, you have questions on what we spoke about today, remember to check out your NCOMPLY. It has the latest guidance, news, regulatory updates, and changes from across the industry, and it's delivered right into your fingertips. Joining us next time, we're going to talk about everything that is happening in the month of November, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you so much. That wraps up this month's NCAS Regulatory Brief, talking with our compliance experts about the latest regulatory changes you need to be aware of. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. And if you're not subscribed yet, we invite you to do so on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening.